G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. And when we talk about the sorts of resources that are available today, they are amazing resources to help ground your faith and the faith of your family and to prepare you to be able to discuss all sorts of issues all about Christianity with a whole new level of confidence. Well, our special guest today has been the producer of some of the finest resources that are available, and it's likely you may be familiar with those television series, uh, one called Jesus the Game Changer, another one called Towards Belief, and then there are the earlier productions called The Men's Series, The Family Series, and the talk program Face to Face along with the popular radio segments called The Daily Nudge. Well, behind all of these resources is Carl Fays, who spent 30 years pastoring one of the largest churches in Sydney before intensifying his efforts in media productions and social commentary. Well, Carl is at the helm of Olive Tree Media these days. And some good news, Carl has been working on a new series, that's going to be out later this year that promises to take us on a journey with the expansion of Christianity from Israel to the ends of the earth. Carl Fays, the CEO of Olive Tree Media, a special welcome along to 2020. Neil, it's great to be with you and good to be here. Well, Carl, welcome back. I think you've been spending less time on our shores than you have uh, visiting other places around the world, doing all sorts of filming. You're only just back on Australian soil. Where have you been travelling and and filming for your latest series? Yeah, Neil, it's been exciting and wonderful, as well as being a little taxing. So we we started at the beginning of February, and we were in the UK. uh, So we're in basically Ireland, Scotland, the UK, and Germany um, for a couple of weeks, and I was home for a week. And then spent three weeks in the U.S. and basically <laughs> a heap of places: L.A., Denver, uh, Worthington, South in Minnesota. Um, we also went into Boston, uh, New York, Philadelphia, Washington. Uh, fabulous time just uh, interviewing for this new series. Then we we're home for this week, two weeks. And then we're out off to Asia on Sunday. Then home for a couple of weeks, and then we go to Africa for the final leg of filming this series. Uh, does the novelty wear off, Carl? Uh, you know, we're all this travelling, some people will be thinking, oh, wouldn't this be wonderful, the jet-setting Carl Fays? Oh, look, it, you know, it's, it is wonderful, but it is very taxing. Um, I'm not trying to make it sound like it's awful. We we love doing it in our team. There's six of us mostly that travel now together. But you do have these moments, like we're in a place called Sioux Falls, which is in South Dakota. Our plane was supposed to leave at Chicago at 6 at night, Neil, and uh, 12.30... Uh, in the morning, a.m., they cancelled the flight. Uh, and we needed to get to Chicago for a couple of re- very key interviews. So we we were very fortunate, uh, blessed, really, that uh, the lady, I'm not sure why she was still there, was at the counter of the Avis uh, counter in Sioux Falls at 1 o'clock in the morning. So we, we uh, 
we booked a car, took a drove out of Sioux Falls, and uh, spent the next eight hours driving across three different states to get to Chicago in time for the interviews in the next couple of days. So it does it does have its taxing moments, but most of the time it's fabulous. Actually, interesting when you say important interviews with people in all of these different locations, because at such a time as this in our history, when we can do quality audiovisual productions uh, in the way that we can do today that haven't been able to be done before. Uh, some of the identities, no doubt some of the ones that you talk about are highly qualified, highly educated, academic. Uh, others are going to be family connections to some of the significant things that have happened in World Mission over the past hundred years. Uh, so when you talk about important interviews, you're actually having these wonderful opportunities to be face-to-face with people who've been really close to the action, especially over over the missional development of church life over the last hundred years. Yeah, it, 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 you're absolutely right. And so it's a real mix of people in this series, as we've tried to do in our others. Like, for instance, we're in Edinburgh and spoke to Brian Stanley, who's written this outstanding book, Christianity, I think it's Christianity in the 20th century, something like that. And and uh, he's this wonderful academic who's written great books. And, you know, people like Tom Holland, who's not quite a Christian yet, but uh, has some really interesting reflections on the early church. Eric Metaxas and Mark Knoll and, and Oz Guinness, brilliant minds, great uh, scholarship thinking and experience. But then the other end of the scale, it's not that they're not bright, they just have a very different worldview. We actually interviewed Maryam and Marzia, who are now living in America, but were jailed in Iran for nine months in terrible conditions because they'd become Christians and were taught that were, were caught giving out the Bible. And if it wasn't for pressure from Christians around the world, they may still be there. And uh, apostasy in Iran is still punishable by jail or death. Um, so we tell their story, this incredibly moving story of these two girls facing persecution as followers of Jesus. And then, as you said about relatives, we're, we're also uh, going to interview in Asia, in Hong Kong next Next Monday, in fact, we'll be interviewing Jamie Taylor, who's Hudson Taylor's great-grandson. So, you know, you put all that together, and uh, Neil, it's just a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. Well, the stories you must hear, Carl, must be absolutely amazing, because as we reflect on the history of the church, and there's so much that's happened over 2,000 years, but what we're talking about here is danger and adventure, in the way that the church has expanded around the globe. And if we were reflecting back to Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, those words, to the ends of the earth, these are the inspiring words that you're putting together for your newest series that's coming out later this year, to the ends of the world, that's a, that's a big, big story to tell. Oh, look, Neil, it is. It's a wonderful story. I mean, and um, so the, the series will still be under the same name as our last series, Jesus the Game Changer. But the sub-phrase for this, as you say, is to the ends of the earth. So people are looking for it late this year. It'll be Jesus the Game Changer to the ends of the earth. And it's, it's you know, we... We take for granted that there's 2.4 billion Christians across the world. It's a global faith. Um, It's numerically the largest faith in the world. And we just take this for granted. But, you know, think about this for all of your listeners to consider this. You know, in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, the followers of Jesus got together in an upper room and there was 120 of them. 
And that tiny little group are the seeds of what is now 2.4 billion people. And the, and the question is, how did that happen? Because, well, again, see, we, we just, you know, it's part of the air we breathe as Christians and even in a global community. But that is a most remarkable story. So what we're trying to do, I mean, is to try and tell that story in some sort of potted way over 13 episodes. So starting with Jesus and what he said that meant that people actually tried to take his faith to the ends of the earth. And then going through some periods of time, going through specific issues, because some very specific issues around the ends of the earth and how the, the gospel made it there. And then also looking at a few different countries just to look at what happened. You know, we don't often think of those words of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 as being words of prophecy, but they were, weren't they? And if uh, for those listening to our conversation even right now who have faith in Christ, uh, we are in fact a part of the fulfilled prophecy that Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, uh, that, you know, to the ends of the earth uh, you'll be my witnesses. And we are ones who've responded to that call, responded to that gospel message. And so there is a sense in here where we can appreciate the awesomeness of God in the way that world mission has unfolded over 2,000 years, Carl. And if you think about sitting in Palestine and using the words to the ends of the earth, you don't get much further away than Australia and New Zealand, do you? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Northern ter- uh, hemisphere to the southern hemisphere, one side of the globe to the other. And it's, it's quite remarkable. We should, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but the, the really interesting story is when St. Patrick, which we should t- talk about that later, but St. Patrick decides that he's going to go to Ireland and he's called to Ireland. Wonderful story. But one of the interesting thing that St. Patrick writes about it going to Ireland, that he believes that now that Jesus can return, because now we've got to the ends of the earth. Now, we all think, well, that's odd, it's only Ireland. But if you think about the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire only went to the edge of England, and then basically the next thing across the water was Ireland. They didn't even know about America. There's no concept that there was even Americas north or south that existed. So St. Patrick writes about, we've now got to the ends of the earth, which is it's sort of humorous now, but then it was quite a serious thought. Well, the ends of the earth keeps growing, and uh, well, now we yep. now we know where the ends of the earth are, and as you say, we're very close to it. But the ends of the earth, as church history has developed, have continued to expand. And so, when you've identified those particular uh, personalities, like Saint Patrick, and we're talking Saint Patrick, aren't we? Uh, fifth century and so you've chosen particular identities and some of those because they identify very closely I guess with our Australian heritage too because we've got this Irish ancestry you've chosen people to talk about uh, in this whole issue of to the ends of the earth and mission endeavor uh, and and it's made it's going to be quite relevant to Australians Carl yeah totally And, and the thing about St Patrick and this is what's there's so many interesting things about St. Patrick, if we can just focus on him for a moment. Now, many people, most people, as, as the academics we've talked to have said, what most people think about St. Patrick is actually wrong. <laughs> he was Irish, he wasn't. Um, that he got rid of snakes, he didn't. Uh, you know, all this sort of, all this sort of um, uh, kind of heritage around St. Patrick. I mean, St. The, the important thing about St. Patrick is you've got to keep in mind that the 5th century when St. Patrick is going to Ireland, think about what's happening in, in Rome. Rome is being 
being invaded by the, the tribes from the north, the Goths, the Visigoths, the, the, the Germanic tribes are coming south and they're, they're sacking Rome. And they're, they're kind of, the Roman Empire is, is certainly in the western side is being crushed. And, and many of the libraries are being burnt to the ground. Thomas Cahill, who's not a Christian writer just as much as a historian, actually wrote a book called How the Irish Saved Civilization. Sounds like a joke, but it's actually a serious book. And his point is that while Rome is being sacked and the libraries are being burned, across the other side, you know, 2,000, 2,500 kilometers away, there's these small groups of Irish Celtic monks who are writing and reproducing everything, everything they get hold of. And that's all because of this guy, St. Patrick. Now, we call him St. Patrick. It's odd that he's a saint because nobody actually names him as a saint. The Catholics and the Orthodox don't actually name him as a saint, but he's known as a saint. But many people may not know that the first time that Patrick went to Ireland was actually as a slave. As about a 15, 16-year-old, he was stolen from his wealthy family, probably in Wales, although some people think it was in Brittany. Uh, Irish raiders turned up went to his home, a wealthy home with servants, a Roman background, stole him out of that and took him across the, 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 the sea to Ireland and he was sold as a slave to look after somebody else's cattle on the hillsides of a place called Slemish, which is where we filmed as well. And Neil, he was there for seven years, seven years looking after somebody else's uh, cattle, uh, animals, as a slave, held at night or out on the hills by himself. And over that time, he had, he had roots because of his family had Roman background and Roman Christian roots. He, he deepened his faith in Jesus. He talks in his own letters about getting, starting to pray up to 100 times a day. And this deep personal faith in Jesus develops as a slave in Ireland. And then one day he gets told there's a ship waiting. And it's like he walks quite well known he walks 200 miles he's told by a a kind of like a a dream a word from god go to this place there's a ship waiting He, he runs he walks to the ship eventually gets on the ship eventually gets home and then when he's home and we're not sure exactly where he went there's the bit of his story is very unsure but when he gets home what's clear is that again he gets another dream another vision just like paul and the macedonian churches the people said, come and be with us again, come and save us, come and, come and work with us. And because of that vision, his love for Jesus, his love for the Irish people, even though he was held as a slave there, he goes back to Ireland with a group of people and starts uh, a missionary work in Ireland. And that takes, took Ireland from being a pagan nation with no kind of Christian religion faith foundation and takes them to a great... Uh, well, a place where Celtic monat- the monastic movement, the, the monasteries, the Irish monasteries are called Celtic monasteries, grew, influenced the people. The people as a nation took on the faith of Jesus, not obviously everybody, but th- a large number did. And then they became the roots of missionaries going to Scotland, to England, and all the way to Europe, all the way to northern Italy. And that is just a wonderful, wonderful story. And it's about a guy who didn't become bitter and twisted and angry as a slave, but deepened his walk with Jesus, deepened his faith. And when he got home and he was free, 
He then gives himself back to these people that held him as a slave, and it changed the world. And it's a marvellous, wonderful story, Neil. It is a wonderful story, and it was only St. Patrick's Day just a week and a half or so ago, on the 17th of March, and uh, a lot of people were swilling green beer and uh, various things like that, but uh, it's quite a shock then for some people. And it's just, it's sad, really, Neil, because, you know, it's it's sort of seen as a, you know, almost not a joke, but this humorous... Oh, St. Patrick's Day. If the people sitting in pubs drinking themselves stupid would understand the person that they were talking about, they would actually, they perhaps wouldn't use his name in that way because it's just this remarkable story of someone who was completely sold out to the person of Jesus and the message of the gospel and gave himself to that and that's what changed Ireland. St. Patrick the Missionary. And uh, interesting, all those... Uh, legends that grow up around uh, a missionary and uh, you've got to yep. maybe even uh, argue whether that's good or bad because some of those legends like you know uh, driving out the snakes but there weren't any snakes in Ireland or uh, interesting the way that he somehow rather adapted the shamrock uh, with mm. three leaves and explaining yep. the holy trinity to the Irish people yep. because uh, he obviously was a thinker and someone who who, with some level of education, as you say, started those monastic movements, and they were copying and writing, and and education was a part of what they were doing in those early missionary endeavours. Uh, powerful stuff. We'll come back yeah, and, and continue. Was, Sorry, yeah, what were you yeah. going to say, Carl? Oh, I was just going to say it's quite it's quite interesting as well because there are some writers that talk about the fact that if you think about Patrick going to Ireland and the movement that he started, which wasn't necessarily a monastic movement, but that's what it became. What, what they did was they put these these gatherings of people on main roads and on places that they could be seen and, and often on islands, but often they were, they were quite accessible and they were they were actually kind of outward looking. If you look at the say the first Benedictine um, monasteries and that that movement in in often around Northern Ireland, Southern France, all those places, often they were people who were retreating from a dangerous world. To, to sustain faith together. And it's a very, it's, it's not that the, the monastic movement in Europe didn't become missionaries, they did. They had enormous influence. But it's very interesting kind of looking at the difference between these uh, monasteries set up to almost protect faith, these monasteries in Ireland, Celtic monastic movement, outward looking as missionaries to influence the community. Life. Culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Carl Fays has a new production. It's ready to happen a little later this year. It's going to be called To the Ends of the Earth, telling the big stories about the expansion of Christianity around the world. Carl, in telling the stories, this is an interesting thing because stories are attached to events or to personalities, and you're picking up on the personalities, those people who have been, in in fact, what we call giants of missionary endeavour. Another one of those is David Livingston. Uh, Give us some insights into your studies under David Livingston. Now, the, the interesting thing about David Livingstone is often people know him, especially in Africa, as an explorer, because that's what he did a lot of. He's such an interesting guy. Grew up in Edinburgh, grew up in a poor family, worked from, a, from like early teens through to early 20s in a, a, a factory, a, a fabric factory, I think it was, and, uh, and then put himself through night school to become a doctor. 
He wanted to go to China to follow Hudson Taylor as a missionary to China because he felt God was calling him to a missionary. Uh, but there was the opium wars at the time in China, and so there was no access to get into China. And he chatted to somebody else who, who, who wanted to go to Africa and pointed him towards Africa, and he went to Africa, and as they say, the rest is history. And the remarkable thing is that he first went as a missionary. He discovered Victoria Falls, walked transversed Africa on foot, first person to ever do that. Then he went back to England, and he became very famous at the time because you know, he's, it's like a guy going to the moon, Neil. You know, he's this, this guy has come to this weird, strange place, and he's telling these remarkable stories of where he's been. When he wanted to go back again, the, the London missionary, um, the London missionary gr- the group didn't decided they didn't want to fund him, and so he actually went back the second time with the London Geographic Foundation. So that's where people kind of see him as a as a. a kind of explorer and he was looking at particular around the Zanzibar sorry not Zanzibar he was in in what we now know as Malawi around what's called now Lake Malawi it used to be called Lake Nyasa and he was into up the Zambezi River and it was he was kind of exploring that whole area very complex story Neil went back to England came back again the last time he was trying to find the source of the Nile and never did one of the things that's really striking about Livingston he was motivated to take the love of Jesus to Africa, but what also motivated him, and what I found incredibly interesting, is that when he was in Malawi, what we now call Malawi, he discovers this massive slave trade. Now, I thought Wilberforce, and you know, 1833, abolition of slavery, that that had ended slavery, but that was the west coast of Africa, not the east coast. And on the east coast of Africa, coming out of through Lake, what was then known as Lake Nyasa, was this massive slave trade, and they were mostly carrying ivory. So ivory and slaves would go to the island of Zanzibar, and there was a slave trade, a slave um, trading point, and an ivory trading point. And one of the things that uh, what Livingston did was to let the world know that this slave trade was happening. So he was a missionary, he was an explorer, and he was a uh, abolitionist trying to end the slave trade in eastern Africa. He buried his wife and next to the Zambezi River. He he struggled in all sorts of ways with terrible health. And in the end, he died, if I can just elongate this story just a little longer. He dies in Africa, and the people that are working with him, that have worked with him for years, a couple of local um, kind of helpers, as it were, they, they took out his heart and his intestines, and they buried them in Africa. They rolled his body in salt, wrapped it in cloth, and then carried it for nine months back to the back to the coast, and then from the coast shipped his body back to London. And when he gets back to London, he gets taken to the National Geographic um, headquarters, and then this massive parade through London, and he's buried right in the middle of Westminster Abbey and we did this piece of camera looking at his grave in the middle right in the middle section of Westminster Abbey the story of this remarkable man sold out to the ministry and mission of Jesus wow well you have a missionary who is a martyr in some sense there for his faith a doctor a scientist an explorer a reformer yep. 
an anti-slavery crusader. And that just uh, just a, a quick comment from you here, Carl, because sometimes we think of missionary endeavor as someone who's carrying a message of the gospel uh, that uh, you know is a repent now and uh, and and serve God. But there was something more to these missionaries we're talking about because with all of those dimensions, uh, they were they were looking at the whole of life and the welfare of people and uh, and the way that people would in fact prosper under Christ. What were your what would your thoughts be about you know these different dimensions more than just preaching a message? Oh, look, you know, if you look at the missionary movement, you know, sometimes it's just seen as terrible colonialism. The missionary movement changed the world. Like, that's, that seems like a bold statement. But give me, let me give you three examples. Mary Slessor, around the same time as um, um, David Livingston, left Edinburgh and went to, to Nigeria. She was in the southern part of Nigeria. When Mary Slessor, as a missionary, taking the message Jesus gets to Nigeria, she discovers that in this section of Nigeria that the people believed that twins were evil. So if you had twins, you took them into the forest and you either left them there or killed them. And Mary Slessor is going into the forest and picking up these children and taking them back and saying, they're not evil. <laughs> these are real people. You've got to love them. Go to South America. There was another set of missionaries with Wycliffe Bible translators, which is just a marvelous, marvelous story. And again, they were in one village and they just felt that if they had too many children, when they, it's, the mother would go again into the, the forest and the woods and have her baby. And then if she didn't want it, she'd just choke it, choke it right there with her bare hands. And these missionaries are saying, you can't, you can't cheat your children like that. These are, these are people. Take, take uh, William Wilberforce, going back to Wilberforce. I mean, there was a situation in India where the East Indian Company was making trading company was making you know enormous amounts of money but didn't want to get involved and Wilberforce and others find out that there's a thing called sati happening in in India and sati is that uh, your wife is your possession and so if an elderly man has a younger wife she might be 17 18 and he dies they put him on the funeral pyre they burn him to death they burn him his body his dead body on the funeral pyre but because his wife is owned by him she is put on the funeral fire and burned with her husband. And, and Wilberforce is saying to England, to India, and to the East Indian Trading Company, you can't allow this to happen. And so what you see around the world is that missionaries turn up, and they yes, they bring the message of Jesus, but they love people in the name of Jesus, and they see injustice, and they act against it in the name of Jesus. So one of the people we interviewed was a guy called Robert Woodbury, He's written a, a, a fabulous paper. People can go and Google this paper and read it themselves, The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracies. And one of the things that, as a serious piece of academic study that's been peer-reviewed, what Robert Woodbury does is he looks around the world and he sees that very good outcomes, like a positive, robust democracy, have formed around the world when missionaries turn up and change the community. They do bring the message of Jesus, but they bring literacy they bring civil society, they bring education, and later on they bring health as well. It's a marvellous, wonderful story. Carl, let's talk for a moment about where cricket is part of this because uh, cricket has a role to play in world missions because there is a particular identity who was a part of that original Ashes series uh, who is a part of the expansion of Christianity, particularly uh, 19th century and into 20th century. We had this wonderful experience, Neil, of, of filming at Lords. 
So anybody who's a cricket lover will know Lords. It's almost like holy ground in cricket, isn't it? And uh, we were telling the story of C.T. Studd. And C.T. Studd did play in that original Ashes um, uh, uh, series. He, uh, and he played against Australia at Lords. When he was playing in Lords, he was actually playing for the Middlesex, I think it's called, um, county team, which is housed at Lords and um, against Australia and scored a century. And so he's just a remarkable character. He, his dad made a lot of money in uh, India, northern India, took his three sons back to England, and he wanted his three sons to be educated in England, so was, they went to Eton College, and then they went to Cambridge. At Cambridge, C.T. Studd was the captain of the Cambridge cricket team, and his two brothers played in that team. But at 23, and the other thing to keep in mind about C.T. Studd, we talked to, to uh, somebody at Lords who's a librarian at Lords, which is just an odd job, isn't it? You know, a librarian at <laughs> yes. Lords Cricket Ground. That's right. <laughs> Anyway, he brought out all these stats. One of the things he said is many, if you're, if you're listening and you're a bit of a cricket fan, you might know the name W.G. Grace. W.G. Grace in the 18th century, 19th century is one of the greats of cricket. He was the first man ever to score a thousand runs and take a hundred wickets. This kind of all-rounder. Thousand runs and a hundred wickets. The next person ever to do that in first class cricket in India, sorry, in England, first person ever to do that first-class cricket in England was C.T. Studd. And so here, here is this guy with a massive future. And at 23, C.T. Studd left cricket, left England, and became a missionary in China. Um, it, it, gets, it gets even more interesting, Neil. So he goes to China with the, what was called the, the Cambridge Seven. The, the seven young men out of Cambridge University, C.T. Studd had the captain of the cricket team the captain of the rowing team was also part of that seven went to join um hudson taylor in china but ct stud then then uh, at 25 was given twenty-five thousand pounds inheritance from his dad now at that stage in the you know 1870s i guess it was that was a lot of money he gave it all away gave it all away five thousand of which he gave to dl moody because dl moody was a preacher who's, who brought his dad to faith. And he wanted D.L. Moody to use the money in India. D.L. Moody couldn't use the money in India. So D.L. Moody started a little little institute. You know what it was called? The Moody Bible Institute. Right. So C.T. Studd's money started the, the, the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, which still exists today. And then Studd goes on to, to China, then on to India, eventually on to Africa. And then he and his wife started an organization called the World evangelization crusade wet which still exists today so here is this wonderful guy who walks away from fame and fortune to serve people around the world to give them the message of jesus just a marvelous story what is this saying carl about modern people like us when we hear stories like ct stud giving away fame and fortune and with all of that determination, spent 15 years in China and then I think uh, six more in India, but the abandonment of uh, the the fame and the fortune because he'd basically taken up his cross and decided to follow Jesus and serve him with his whole heart. What's the message in that for today? 
Well, it's it's it's, a, it's a looking at our values. You know, there's too often in in the the church today, our values we just we just swallow the values that we're given by what modern liberal Western nations, and then we put a thin layer of Jesus over it. And the worst of that is we say, you know what Jesus is going to do? Jesus is going to save you, but Jesus is going to make you wealthy. And if you pray right, you live right, you act right, you know, wealth is going to be your lot. And here are some of the greats of faith who walked away from that to give themselves to the kingdom of God. Now, that's not saying that wealth is a bad thing and that God doesn't bless you. That Nobody's saying any of that. But what we're saying is when we make that our aim and we make, you know, gaining as much as we can for ourselves personally so that we live a comfortable life, if that's our aim, we're actually missing the kingdom of God. And the people that actually have done the greatest good across the globe are those that have walked away from often wealth and privilege to use their abilities for the kingdom of God. I need to say, Chris, quickly, Neil, that, you know, we've talked about a couple of people who were, you know, Westerners, you know, Livingston and starter Westerners coming out of places like England. Uh, The world is full of great people in Asia and in in South America and in Africa, local people who did exactly the same thing. I'm just using the names of those that we might know out of Western history. They are popular names and they are popular stories and you're bringing them to life afresh uh, in a new way with this new series that you're going to be releasing a little later on this year. Interesting, when we talk about C.T. Studs, uh, he was part of that group you called the Cambridge Seven and followed Mm. Hudson Taylor to China and uh, wanted to serve there because they saw China as just a huge mission field uh, ready to receive the gospel message. Let's talk about Hudson Taylor because he's another one of these great, uh, exciting and uh, adventurous missionaries. Uh, what are your thoughts on Hudson Taylor and the sorts of research yeah, I mean, you're doing? Yeah, I mean, Hudson Taylor was actually a medical doctor, as many of these missionaries were, like we said with David Livingston. And uh, Hudson Taylor, if you read his story, actually prepared himself as much as he could to to be ready to go to china i mean it's a it's a remarkable story hudson taylor did what uh, what some others before him had done i just as a, a sideline hudson taylor hudson taylor we we think about hudson taylor as being one of the first great missionaries into china but you know a couple of hundred years before hudson taylor the, the jesuits and a guy called matteo ritchie a Jesuit with a, 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 um, an Italian background went to China, and he did the same thing that Hudson Taylor did. Taylor Ritchie goes there, decide, decides that wearing the black monk's outfit or the you know missionary's outfit is not really very wise. So he starts dressing like the locals. He starts cutting and styling his hair like the Chinese. He then gets himself ingrained into the, the court um, of, the, of the highest courts to allow himself to get to know the people and to share the message of Jesus alongside of all his mathematical and scientific learning. And so Hudson Taylor does the same thing. We, we do that. We do that today and we think, of course, you know, we're, here we are so modern that we do con- contextualization. So we're the enlightened ones doing contextualization, speaking people's language, getting into their culture. This is hundreds of years old, Neil. And that's what Hudson Taylor did. He, he, he spoke their language. He, he dressed as the Chinese did. But the other thing that's really important is people might remember that Hudson Taylor's missionary group is called the China Inland Mission. Now, think about those words, because it's a bit odd, really. Why inland? That's because 
most missionaries stayed in the treaty ports where you could be kind of safer with the treaties that they'd set up and act as a missionary in these ports, these treaty ports. Hudson Taylor said, I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to go into the inland of China. He sent people out in twos. He, he, he recruited many, many women who, you know, if you look at some of the old photos of the China inland missionaries, there's a high percentage of women. They went out in twos. They lived with the people. They lived in remote places. They took the message to inland China, which meant that when the Boxer Rebellion occurred, they were in the firing line and many of them lost their lives. But Hudson Taylor, um, I, I think is the book written by his grand, his uh, son and her hus- his husband, wife, talks about Hudson Taylor uh, baptizing over 100,000 Chinese and, and the, the gospel message that went to China because of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor buried his wife in China, buried at least one of his children in China. It was a huge cost for what they were doing, but he was just taking the message to the ends of the earth. Now, you mentioned a little earlier, Carl, that you had some contact, and I think, uh, did you say you'd done an interview with the great-grandson of Hudson Taylor? Yes. Uh, this is we the, why it's so valuable getting out and doing what you're doing. Yes, yeah, so he, his name's Jamie Taylor. He lives in Taiwan, but we're flying him to Hong Kong, which is where we will be. So next Monday or Tuesday, okay. we're doing the interview with Jamie Taylor. And Jamie Taylor holds, as it were, he's, this is his ministry. He still supports the ministry that they did because um, that changed their name to OMF now from the China Inland Mission because they, they act globally. And Jamie Taylor is going to tell some of what I've just said and more in telling Hudson Taylor's story. And there's a connection to Australia with Hudson Taylor because he sailed to Australia back in 1890. Are you familiar with that history? I I know that he's been here. I know that actually many people from Australia joined the China Inland Mission. Uh, So the influence, you know, global influence is quite remarkable, not just in in China where he was, but the fact that he recruited people from places like Australia and influenced Australia as well. Well, there's so many stories to tell. In fact, different cultures will tell their different stories in the way that the missionary movement has affected them. We're a young nation here, and so I suppose when we talk about the effect of mission in coming to Australia, uh, we're talking more recent times, and this is, I guess, where your focus is too, Carl, with this new series that you're putting together. But you've got a lot to say about the changing face of mission and reaching to the ends of the earth and and the last hundred years has been huge. What's your reflection on uh, on things like uh, you know the last hundred years as missionary movements have continued to spread around the world? Well, one of the ways of looking at that, Neil, is is to um, look at the, a thing called the the World Mission Conference that was held in Edinburgh in 1910. And so you know the the, the hundred years before that, and and it was a it was a very optimistic. This group of people got together. But think about this. There were 2,000 people that, that gathered in Edinburgh. They were basically all men who gathered in Edinburgh at, the, at uh, just under the, just next to the castle, Edinburgh Castle. Uh, we actually filmed in the room that they did this meeting. Of the 2,000, uh, basically 1,700 of them came from either America or the UK. Only 18 or 20 came from Africa or Asia. And if, if you were to, it's just, if you think about that's where, you know, there's this idea of the West to the rest, you know, America, uh, England, uh, some of Europe, 
taking the message of Jesus, seeking to be um, strategic in how they were doing this, and they were planning how they were going to reach the rest of the world with the message of Jesus. And one of the questions we asked Brian was, sorry, not Brian, Neil, we asked Brian Stanley this question, Neil. We said, so if we took, if we took somebody from that, that conference and we're able to take them out of 1910 and put them to today, what would surprise them most today as opposed to what was happening in 1910? And Brian Stanley said that the, the amount of Christians in Africa and the growth in the Pentecostal movement is the thing that would strike them most. So if you went back 100 years, in Africa, there was about 8 to 9 million Christians, they believed, in Africa. About 8 to 9 percent it was. Today, the numbers are hard to judge, but it's closer to 500 million Christians in Africa. Wow. And that growth is absolutely stunning. Now, some people criticize missionary movement to say, oh, it's just colonialism, you know, they went in with the colonial overlords and took over countries. But what you need to remember is when colonialism kind of finished in Africa, that's when Christianity took off. And in places like sub-Saharan Africa, there's been an explosion of Christianity. China is probably, who knows how many Christians are in China, somewhere between 60 to 120 million. South America, massive. So you've got these places where the missionary movement went in and started, but really it was when the missionaries almost withdrew and the locals took on the mantle of, of sharing Jesus with their community that actually those nations were radically changed. You know, interesting, isn't it, Carl, the, the way that the colour of the skin has changed uh, for yep. missionaries because, and uh, there's something that's even an overhang now and it's even been politicised even in these last couple of weeks, uh, the idea of being white, uh, being aligned mm. with Christianity. And at one point there would have been a outnumbering of whites to people who had coloured skin. But these days... As I understand it, and uh, you might know better than I, uh, some, so these details go, something like 80% of Christians around the world are brown and black and uh, all sorts of different skin colours, and only a smaller percentage, like 20%, are white-skinned. There's, there's a big, big change in the way that missionaries look about the, the, the makeup of Christianity. What are your thoughts on, on the changes that have happened and dynamically over this past century? Totally. I, I'm not sure of those, the numbers, so someone will have to look that up. But certainly the, the, it's, it's a bit like the centre of Christianity has moved from places like England and Europe and America. I mean, you look at England and Europe, um, even Australia, Canada, uh, the, the decrease in the number of people who call themselves Christian, the increase in, in the non-religion group, uh, the cynicism around religion and faith and belief in those countries... Now the growth is, is in places like Ghana and in Nigeria and in South America and in China. And the interesting thing is in each of those places, there's actually a move to do mission back in the West. So Ghana, there's a, we, we do a little piece on a guy called James McCune who went from uh, uh, just outside uh, of Ballymena, outside of, of um, Belfast in Ireland, in about, 18, about 1930, he decided to go to what was then the Gold Coast of, of Africa, which then be, was changed to Ghana, started working with the local Ghanese, created this church called the Church of Pentecost. The Church of Pentecost now has uh, 20,000 churches and 3 million members, 
and the Church of Pentecost in Ghana is now sending missionaries to Ireland and to London and to Europe. And that picture has been repeated time and time and time again. You know, your average missionary now is not someone from the West going to somewhere else in the world. It's more likely to be somebody from Africa or China or South America going to a Western nation. Now, America is still, I think, by numbers, the largest missionary sending group, but certainly those other nations are growing in the number of missionaries that they send. Uh, I imagine that you've probably been to a few mission conferences over the years, Carl. Uh, the way that strategies work when you get missionary leaders together, uh, you know, talking about that 1910 conference yep. where they really had a goal of the evangelization of the whole world in their yep. generation. When you go to a missionary conference these days, do people talk about, you know, local strategies or are they still talking global strategies when you when you attend these sorts of conferences? Look, I mean, not a lot of people talk global strategies because they realize that it's almost impossible to do in the sense that and the global strategies changed a lot, Neil, because you think about, you know, one of the questions that we've asked each of our guests is so. Now that the church is global, geographically global, what does to the ends of the earth mean now? Like, mm-hmm. so does the ends of the earth mean anything? And it's all about there are still some people groups that don't have the gospel, but not many, and certainly people like Wycliffe Bible Translators and others are looking at those. Um, but there's the, the, the kind of re-evangelization of the West, and that has to be a local ministry where people are reaching their local community. The, the contextualization, which is just a long word that means just act locally and, and don't t- come in as the kind of missionary with all the answers, but to get involved in your local community. Th- those are the sorts of things that are people talk, are talking about. And the other thing, too, is it's not just... You know, a a community's not really reached just because somebody's gone there or because the Bible's in their language, which is huge, but because there's a church planted with those people. So those people groups need a local church, and that local church does the the evangelization, the bringing of their community to Jesus. So part of what the ministry of of mission is doing is planting churches as much as uh, as much as those other activities that that the missionaries have been known for for centuries. Well, this is all part, as you said a little earlier, of an extension of Jesus the Game Changer. And you're going to be talking about the expansion of Christianity to the ends of the earth. Uh, It is your latest production, Carl, and uh, we are running out of time, but uh, this one's not likely to be out until sometime a little later this year. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge job. So we're in the middle. It's great to talk to you about it and let people know it's coming and for people to be ready for it. But uh, we're, we're working with TBN, Trinity Broadcasting uh, uh, Network in the U.S., and it will be broadcast first and exclusively on the T- on TBN in America starting around the first or second week of September this year. Then we uh, will also be producing it as a DVD, and it will be available. Now, even though it sounds like you know it's exclusive in America and nobody can get it, if you go to the TBN website, you, once it's been broadcast on TBN, you'll be able to stream it, and wherever you are, you can get access to their website. So that, that it will be available uh, from kind of middle of September this year, which sounds like a long time, but I, I tell you now, Neil, it's a lot of pressure to get it out ready <laughs> for that period of time because it's a big job. So it'll be 13 episodes of 26 minutes each, and it will actually be going uh, to numbers of places around the world demonstrating 
how the message of Jesus has got to and continues to get to the ends of the earth. Well, Carl, honour to you for your inspirational leadership here and getting these stories into the hands of the rest of us ordinary believers who need these sorts of resources to help us to understand where the history has been. And as you use that word, contextualization puts us in a context and says, who are we in the 21st century here in Australia towards the ends of the earth? I think uh, people talk about New Zealand as being the end of the, of the earth, so we're, <laughs> we're getting close to it. But, but here we are in the context, 21st century, and what God is doing, as we talked about God being so awesome in the way that it has been fulfilled in the sense of uh, taking that witness, that message of the gospel to the ends of the earth, as in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Carl, wonderful talking to you. Carl Fays, CEO of Olive Tree Media. Keep an eye out for that new series coming out later this year, olivetreemedia.com.au, to make contact with Carl and to see any of the other series that we talked about a little earlier. olivetreemedia.com.au. Carl, thanks so much for taking some time to share your thoughts with us on 2020. Thank you, Neil. It's been a pleasure. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.